Welcome to Filmstrip and our reviews of the Alien movie franchise. There is an explanation for this. Featuring Nick. Check it out. I am the ultimate badass. And Jay. This is so nuts. Listen to what you're saying. Please note, these episodes will contain spoilers and in-depth discussion of the plots and characters of the films. All content used or discussed in this podcast are the property of their respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Film Strip. I'm Jay. And I'm Nick. And we thank you for joining us for our Alien series, and this is our review of Aliens, starring Tom Skerritt, Sigourney Weaver, Veronica Cartwright, Harry Dean Stanton, Ian Holm, Yafit Koto, and John Hurt. Written by Dan O'Bannon, Ronald said David Geiler, and Walter Hill, and directed by Ridley Scott. Released in May of 1979 on a budget of $11 million, the film made $104 million in its run and a legion of fans worldwide. Now, Nick, usually this is where I ask why we're reviewing this or that, but we all know why we're here. We're here because of a film called Prometheus that's coming out in June of 2012 that is a prequel to this series, or at least this film specifically. The Nick, we're here because we're going to review the entire Alien series. That's Alien, Aliens, Alien 3, Alien Resurrection, Alien vs. Predator, Aliens vs. Predator Requiem, and Prometheus when it comes out. But you've already talked about your alien fandom on our previous sessions podcast. We were talking about trailers and the trailer for Prometheus. So please tell us more. Well, I guess you could say my youth was pretty charmed. Some kids, they grew up with Star Wars, Indiana Jones, G.I. Joe, or Transformers. My youth was the Alien series. Probably the only six year old that go to bed every night watching gothic horror about face rape. <laughs> but hey, it made me into the man I am today. <laughs> that is scary. Yes, you, you admitted <laughs> that you did take a uh, picture of your newborn son with a plush face hugger. So. Uh, yeah, he had the uh, face hugger, the egg. Um, <laughs> they're they're, they're from, unfortunately from the AVP uh, series of toys, but they were from the earlier movies, so I kind of had to give a little bit of money to those. Uh, to Fox for those movies, but eh, I don't know. I guess it was worth it. <laughs> Some cute photos and stuff. Wife and family thought it was a little bit weird, but you know what? My now four-year-old, and I'm sure the police now are going to come to my house. His two favorite movies now are Alien and Aliens. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he literally, like, yeah. when nights when it's just me and me and him at home, he'll come up and he'll literally be like, oh, let's watch Aliens, and we have fun doing it. We both sit behind the bed and we have his Nerf guns, and when the aliens come on screen, we shoot at the screen with the Nerf guns, so... Very cool, very cool. It's a little binding thing between me and him, but, uh, yeah, I don't know, it just, as a kid, it just really, it's it's a movie that resonated with me. I mean, I love Star Wars and Indiana Jones, but there's just something about the science fiction element, the space, and the fact that it's just not a clean space, it's just like, it was just a dirty film. I mean, all the alien films are very dirty, very used, and it's just a movie like I just, I love, I still love, and I guess we'll get more into it. But it, It's funny that you mention it as being a bonding experience for you and your son, because that's exactly how I got introduced to this. Uh, my dad had seen this movie. I, I was born when it came out, but I think this was one of those, he went with my mom and some other people on the night you get away from the kids, you know, back in those days. And I think they went and saw this, and he just loved it. My dad was always a fan of really dis- different kinds of, of uh, entertainment, and he introduced me to James Bond and to spaghetti westerns and to alien and he loved this film he thought it was just brilliant and 
I remember this is before we even had a VHS player. He rented this thing that was like a, it looked like a big record inside of a big rectangle disc type thing. I don't even know what it's called. Somebody out there probably knows the technology better than me. But you you put it in, it was almost like a tape too. But I remember watching this with him when I I maybe was seven or eight, and I was blown away by what I saw. I mean, it was just amazing to me. And at no time have I ever been scared of this film. But I've been in the mode of a thriller, you know, where you get your adrenaline pumping and all that, and it has never gotten old for me. So I, this is a big one for me. I'm not as big a fan as you. I don't take, you know, pictures of me next to the the creatures, but I I do have a, a very vivid memory of seeing this when I was a young kid and watching it, you know, my entire life. And when we get to Aliens I, and Alien Three, I even have more funny family stories to tell in about how I saw those. But I've actually uh, just been kind of excited actually about doing this. I know we do a lot of uh, more cheesier movies. I mean, like one of the ones that are coming out soon, Terror Vision or the <laughs> Leprechaun series. And, you yeah. know, even stuff that's really not bad movies, but they're kind of on a lesser, you know, when you rank movies like, you know, Trimmers and stuff. I mean, it's a good movie, but it's not in the same stratosphere as this, you know? No, I, I agree. I, next to like the Nolan Batman films that we've done and the one that we'll, we'll do that later on this summer, this is definitely one of the more serious things we've tried to take on and uh, and really go through. I mean, we, you know, continuous plays down everything from Ghostbusters to Pretty Woman and then the Leprechaun series. So we kind of hit it all at one point or another. <laughs> and I, I think it was good that we finally got to Alien and we we talk about this thing. Well, Nick, before we get any further into this, why don't you give us a plot summary for Alien? Sure. In the year 2122, a commercial towing team is returning to Earth. While in hypersleep, the crew, which includes Captain Dallas, Executive Officer Kane, Navigator Lambert, newly instated Science Officer Ash, Warrant Officer Ripley, and Engineers Parker and Brett are awakened by the ship's computer AI named Mother. Expecting to be in their own solar system, the crew is shocked to learn that they are barely halfway there. The crew learns Mother picked up a transmission, and under corporate law, the crew must investigate its origins. They land their ship, the Nostromo, on planet LV-426, having Kane, Dallas, and Lambert head out into the harsh environment to track, out, track down the transmission's, transmission's origin. While gone, Ripley decodes the transmission and discovers the transmission isn't an SOS like first thought, but some kind of warning. But it's too late. Kane, Dallas, and Lambert discovered a crashed alien ship and proceed to enter it, unaware of what lurks inside. Exploring the ship, they find a fossilized giant alien being. When investigating it closer, it seems this creature is a part of the ship growing out of the chair it sits in. Dallas notices the creature's ribcage has been torn open, looking like it exploded from the inside. Kane then finds an opening on the floor of the ship. Investigating it further, he finds a room full of thousands of what seem to be eggs. As soon as he's able to take a closer look, one of the eggs springs open and out jumps a spider-like alien that burns through Kane's helmet and attaches itself to his face. Dallas and Lambert drag Kane back to the Nostromo, and after a short argument with Ripley, Ash breaks quarantine laws and lets Kane's unconscious body into the ship. Kane is alive, but only by the grace of this alien facehugger. While the crew discusses what to do with Kane, the facehugger detaches itself from Kane and dies. The ship then takes off from LV-426 and is ready to head back home. Before going back to hypersleep, the crew has one last meal. During dinner, Kane grabs his chest in pain, and before anyone can help him, a small alien creature bursts off from inside of him. The crew are in shock, unable to do anything as the alien runs away. Soon after, the crew splits up and hopes to kill the alien. After mistaking Ripley's cat Jonesy for an alien, Brett chases after it. After cornering the cat, 
spread his attack and killed by now a seven-foot-tall alien creature, having grown super fast in a matter of only hours. Dallas and the crew tracked the alien down to the ship's air ducts, hoping to trap it within. Dallas enters the air ducts, only to be killed by the alien creature. Lambert begs the crew to use the escape shuttle and leave the ship, but Ripley explains it will not support four people. After accessing the ship's computer, Ripley discovers the company they work for, Whalen Yatani, is aware of the situation and has made the safety and return of the alien top priority. The crew is expendable. Ash, who is in cahoots with the company, tries to stop Ripley from telling the remaining crew and attacks her. After a brief fight, Parker steps in and bashes Ash's head clean off, discovering he is an android. Ash's head explains that the organism is essentially perfect and its perfection is only matched by its hostility. Before Park sets fire to him, Ash gives his sympathies to the Doom crew. Deciding to blow the ship and take their chances in the escape shuttle, Ripley heads to the bridge to set a fuse. While she is there, Parker and Lambert are also killed by the alien. Ripley rushes out, and after a close encounter with the alien, she makes it to the escape ship. After the Nostromo is destroyed, and just before Ripley readies herself for hypersleep, the alien makes his presence on the escape shuttle known. She puts on her spaceship and opens a hatch inside the shuttle. Ripley arms a grappling gun and shoots the alien, propelling the creature into space. The gun, though, is yanked from her hand and is caught on the closing door, tethering the alien outside the ship. The alien attempts to re-enter the ship through one of the engines, but Ripley ignites it, destroying the alien once and for all. Ripley and her cat Jonesy then prepare to enter hypersleep, hoping to be picked up soon on their way back to Earth. End credits. Well, Nick, that certainly uh, gives us a lot to talk about there, and especially the ending. I can't wait till we get to that, because you said something there that I'm I'm pretty sure I disagree with you on, and it's going to be a neat talking point, but we'll, we'll get there, we'll get there. I do think the making of this, or how it came to be, is something to discuss, because part of that definitely informs what we see here. So let's talk about how the script came about. Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shusett, along with, uh, you know, I credited four people for writing it, but those guys were really the ones that started this idea uh, way back right after they were both out of film school, right? Yeah, um, Dan O'Bannon was the original kind of the mastermind behind the script, and he first started writing it. It didn't have a name at first, but he actually first called it Star Beast. <laughs> If you can believe it or not, can you imagine Alien being called Star Beast? That's a horrible title. But uh, he shot the script around, and from everything I've read and heard, um, basically the script that he wrote is the basic uh, framework for the film, but the script itself really wasn't that well. The um, act, the character names were completely different. They were really generic, and... Um, the actual dialogue and everything was amateur at best. Everything I've heard about it was the thing that sold everybody on it and ultimately got, you know, the the big money involved with it and that became Hill and, and Guiler was that chestburster scene. And that that everything else was sort of arbitrary, but that that thing was it was unlike anything they'd seen before and thought that would blow people's mind to do something like that in a science fiction film. There's actually two scenes that actually sold at the Fox. It was the chestburster scene, like you're stating, and also the egg scene. The egg scene, I guess, really wasn't that exciting yeah. to him, but that then mixed in with the chestburster scene, I guess, was a. Those are the two scenes basically they bought 
from the script. Everything else was rewritten. The character names were changed. Scenes were changed. Uh, the android Ash was added in. And the whole ending of the movie, That there's almost like four different types of endings, but we'll get into it later about what the different endings are. And that's what Guyler and Hill really added was the, the changing some of the the dynamics of the crew around. They're the ones that came up with the idea of Ripley being a female, though, uh, you know, O'Bannon will tell you when you watch his, his commentaries about it, was that they said specifically these names could be unisex, cast a male or a female, but they had never really thought of it. So that's one of the things Guyler and Hill really threw in there. And I want to say this. If you don't know Walter Hill, folks, this is a real departure for him. Uh, I actually saw one of his movies again very recently. In fact, this morning, while I was getting ready for work, he made Brewster's Millions with Richard Pryor. I, when I think of Walter Hill, I think of like dramedies and comedies and maybe light action. I don't think of dark gothic sci-fi. Um, so t- his involvement in this certainly, I, I don't know, I think all four of these guys deserve a lot of credit for every piece that they brought to the table. I think Shusette and O'Bannon are the sci-fi guys, um, especially judging from their work afterward. I mean, these are the guys that did the Total Recall film with Schwarzenegger. They wrote that. And at the time, they were actually working on that while they were working on this. And I think that's their end of things. And I think Guyler and Hill knew how to make a big-budget action thriller, or at least a big-budget film. And I think Hill's contribution is really a lot of the character stuff, because his films are very character-driven. And actually, um, one of the lesser-known facts about Alien is, uh, actually, it was because of Ridley being involved that H.R. Geiger got involved later. Uh, he he yeah, read the, uh, uh, I believe it was the Necromonicon, or something like that. Really, is nothing to read, and it's just a, it's a sketchbook. It's really, actually, really cool sketchbook, and I recommend it to anybody who just go to Barnes & Noble. They usually have it. Just page through it. There's some really freaky stuff in there. But yeah, Ge- Geiger's work is weird. So all of that biomechanical, very strange uh, designs. I mean, everything in there is sexually perverse. I mean, everything in his book. I mean, yeah. everything either looks like a penis or a vagina. I mean, the guy's yeah, the that, guy's got some issues. Pretty much what he's doing. But the, yeah. his artwork is fantastic. I mean, he is a great artist and stuff. And he's uh, he's done other work on other films, you know, lesser films like Species and Poltergeist Two and everything. But yeah, but the the, the Giger stuff here is really what makes it. And, and you know, you hear different versions that Dan O'Bannon says he saw that stuff when he was working in France and gave that book to Ridley. Ridley says he had come across it. Either way, if you believe it, it got in Ridley Scott's head. And he saw these things that he described as ghastly yet beautiful at the same time. And I think, if you want to talk about Ridley Scott, he has such a different eye because he's directed so many different kinds of things. I mean, he's done this. He's done straight action. He's done a lot of drama. I don't know that he's ever done like a real comedy or anything like that. And some of it's better than others. But Ridley Scott, has his talent is the fact that he gets behind the camera and actually works the camera. He calls himself an operator. And what he believes in is make a good, do good, strong casting, have actors that know how to do their thing, let them work, and then you work the camera as the director. And, I mean, even he shot a ton of this personally. So, I mean, this really is his film. And speaking of uh, Geiger and stuff, um, if you... I recommend anybody to go online and look at the original Alien design. I believe it was the one that O'Bannon kind of described in his script, even though he really never had a description of the alien. He just kind of described tentacles and stuff like that. 
But if you go on there and look up what the original design was, I think maybe even like Ridley Scott and Giller and O'Bannon. I don't know. Someone designed it out of those three. But it's horrendous. It is, it is absolutely terrible. Uh, it's, it's a biped like the alien, but it's got green skin and like spots on it. And it's got yeah. weird, like, you know, <laughs> double claws that come out and like reverse back. And it's just, it almost looks like a cross between a lizard and an insect. It's, it's a terrible design. Sadly, I think I've seen a film that features a monster very similar to that called Relic that we'll get to one day on this show. I, I know we will, but that's another story for another day. I think that may have been one of the conceptual artists came up with that. But either way, you have this group of artisans get together with some real film jockeys. I mean, that too, Guyler and Hill, and then the sci-fi guys, O'Bannon and Shusett, and you start to create this thing, and then you get into the cast. And I guess we could talk about the cast as we start getting into the film. And well, let's just go ahead and start walking through the film, Nick, and then we can we can talk about these elements as we go. I'll tell you one of the most effective things about this film for me, and it always gets me, this opening sequence with the titles and the way all that scrolls across that planet, and it's like a hieroglyphic coming up, and that thumping kind of weird, eerie score... And for the first six minutes, nobody says a word. It's just people waking up out of deep sleep and the ship sort of coming alive and all that, you know, the computers buzzing and stuff. I'd love that. I mean, that to me sets the whole tone because Ridley Scott talks about this movie like I'm making a haunted house movie in space. And that's exactly how every great classic Vincent Price haunted house movie starts. It's slow and creaky and it just sets a tone. When the movie opens up after the long credit sequence, I mean that credit se- the opening credit sequence is long with the uh, the way that the, the A, the L, the I, the E, and the N completely formed just really slow. But after that, um, it seems you know you got the two space helmets in the beginning, and they almost look like they're talking to each other when the computer's like you know yeah. the screen's coming up on the uh, the shield of the mask or the shield of the helmet, and it. Honestly, it looks like the computer, the two helmets are talking. At first, the first couple of times I saw this movie, I always thought that that was Mother with those heads, that that was actually yeah. where Mother was located and it was actually speaking to itself somehow. But uh, what actually, when the crew starts waking up, you always got to notice that uh, Kane is the first one to get out of bed, and I yeah. just think that's really telling. And I, I think the original plan was that they had him actually wake up in the order that they tied in the movie that Ripley was the last one to get out of bed. Ah, you know, I've never noticed that before. That's a good, it's, it's, good it's not, it's not in the right. theatrical yeah. cut. I think it might be in the director's okay. cut or it might not even be in that one. But I remember really saying something about if you catch the way they wake up, it goes Kane, Brett, Dallas, you know, and then so on and so forth. Parker Lambert and, and or Lambert Parker and then Ripley. So very interesting. So, but I do like the fact that it's this, this slow kind of montage of it's almost 2001, you know, because if you've ever seen 2001 Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick and his 12 minute shots of nothing, you know, that, that happened or nothing happening, but just slow build of stuff. I mean, that's sort of what I'm getting here. And I think I've even heard Ridley say that that was a big influence on him for this film. And that's fine. But I, I like the way this all builds and that it's still just sort of this slow violins and all that. And then we are at the the basically the dinner table, the one place that looks like it's made for humans, you know. And they're sitting there, and it's it's almost like you're dropping in on the middle of a conversation, 
and you can't really follow what anybody's saying, but you're starting to figure out who everybody is. And that I, I really do dig. Yeah, also kind of kind of funny that the first scene you get of them together is also their last scene together. It's all at the dinner table. Yeah, really. I mean, that it, everything it starts to go wrong at the dinner table and ultimately gets worse <laughs> at, the, at the dinner table. So you get the hierarchy. You know, Brett and Parker clearly are the the worker guys. I think you called them engineers. They're technicians, whatever. But they're the guys that work below the deck keeping the ship running and I guess keeping that big refinery that they're towing from melting down. Because that's the whole thing is that they're just basically like a, a team of truck drivers in space. I mean, that's the whole bit, right? Is that they're hauling something through space and they have a definite hierarchy on that ship. And so you get those two guys. Then you've got the two women who are different, have different roles and uh, clearly are, are different ages, maybe different experience levels. And then you've got the other two. We've well, got the other three men. One guy clearly seems to be an academic. That's Ash. Then you've got the two lead officers. And obviously Tom Skerritt has always been old in my lifetime because <laughs> I think he was 45 when he made this movie. And he always looks kind of haggard. And he's great at that, though. I mean, he's, he's perfect at that. But he's clearly in charge because he has that. He's not so much in charge like he's got that Captain Kirk thing going for him. You know, he's much more cool, calm, and collected, like you would expect a captain of a submarine to be or something like yeah, that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I have to ask, though, at this point, at this point, you know, when you're starting to watch a movie, you start basing, like, on what the guys look like and how they're acting on who's going to be the main character. Who did you think was going to be the main character of this movie at this point? You know, I, it's hard not to think about the main character being Ripley because she's such a, a big part of this. But I honestly, the first time I saw this, I was watching Tom Skerritt because I had seen him in other things and he was the face I recognized. And I thought, well, the captain is always the lead dog. It's either him or the British guy. And I called, uh, I wasn't even talking about Ash at that point. I was talking about John Hurt. <laughs> I was like, well, it's, got, it's got to be one of those guys, but it's probably the guy with the beard. You know, the, that would be my guess. It would be yeah, that. even uh, when. Kane is the first one to wake up, and they kind of hold the camera on him and stuff, so it's almost like you're prone to think in the beginning of this movie that, you know, yeah, Kane or Dallas are the main characters. I mean, the only time you, I mean, this is what made in the late 70s, I mean, this is the heyday of the slashers, or the beginning of the slasher movies, and yeah, you had a lot of females who were the main characters, but they were, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis type teenage girls, and they weren't in this caliber of a movie or in this type of a movie. I mean, if they were in horror, it was slasher horror. You know, it wasn't methodical horror like this. I'm glad you mentioned Jamie Lee Curtis and Halloween because we we shouldn't go any further without mentioning that Dan O'Bannon's first thing he ever really did with someone was with John Carpenter, and they made a comedy space spoof, and then that made him want to do a more serious, horrific version of it. But I don't think you can watch Alien and not realize the impact that the film Halloween has on it. This this film works on very similar sensibilities in the way the killer works, at least around the house and stuff and the way the tension builds and ratchets up. I mean, that's you, that, if Carpenter has any legacy at all, it's how he does that. He even did that a few years later in The Thing, uh, which is another one where the tension just builds and builds and builds. So I, I think you can't mention this film without knowing that there's that influence. And then you brought up something else too, the John Hurt 
fake out. That's straight out of 1960, Nick. That's Janet Lee and Psycho. That's the greatest fake out of any <laughs> film ever. You know, you put the big star and then you basically cut her head off 30 minutes into it. And that's what happens here. And I, I, I can't watch this movie and as many times as I've seen it and seen those other two and not feel echoes of Halloween and Psycho in here, too. Oh, yeah. they're def- you're, you're so right with those movies. I mean, they're totally influenced Alien. But Alien has influenced so many others, so it's kind of a give and take. <laughs> It, it is, it is. I mean, it goes back and forth. But to, back to your original question, I thought Dallas was the main character for one real reason. He gets called away from the table to go, quote, talk to mother. And he goes in and he does the whole punch key computer. Man, remember when computers were that big? Um, I mean, the one I'm recording on now is like the size of what he plugs in the wall, basically, <laughs> to, uh, to go in there. And probably could run that ship from where I'm sitting. But anyway, that's 2122. But anyway, I, mean, I, I love that whole little pod that he gets in. You know, that's almost like the thing, again, in 2001 with Hal. You know, there's that, that little place where they go and, and commune, if you will. And that's almost like he has to put on a different hat when he walks in that door. So that's why I'm really watching Dallas here going, what's he trying to learn? What's he figuring out? And that's when... You cut between him in there and the rest of the crew basically getting ready to land on Earth when they realize we're not even halfway there. It's almost like his little fortress of solitude in a way, and it's actually a great uh, tool that the director uses for you to see what Dallas is thinking. You know, that's always one of the drawbacks that movies have when you compare them to, you know, novels, is that in novels or books or comic books, whatever have you, you actually get the inner monologue of the character, or at least the main character, and that's why I kind of think it's great with Mother is you, when you see Dallas typing in stuff in later Ripley, it's their inner monologue. It's what they're thinking and stuff. So it kind of gives you a little extra insight into the character, which I like. Even though it's only a couple seconds, but it's it's still a little great little tool. And you're completely right at that point. Why wouldn't Dallas be the main character? You're going into with him. You're kind of following what he's thinking and what he's doing, and he's the leader. I mean, why wouldn't he be the main character? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, the female heroine wasn't something that was in vogue. If the female survived the horror movie, she was the broken teenager by the end of it, right? I mean, nobody comes out of that, not in the 70s at this yep. point. We hadn't come up with that in the modern film era. So this is the start of, of a lot of that. I mean, you talk about the things that Alien influenced, that may be its long-lasting legacy. We'll have yep. to talk about that at the end of the series. But I do like this opening. And then, you get, like I said, you get to all these people trying to figure out what's going on. Ash is trying to figure out the atmosphere of, of where they are and, uh, and their location. Lambert's realizing they're not in the right place. Ripley's trying to home in yep. and talk to Antarctica, uh, which I thought was really cool. That's not our system. That's not our system. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and they have all that back and forth, and it sets up everything. Like, you can tell, you know, Lambert and Ripley are the two strong, smart women who probably butt heads because they're both trying to overcome those stereotypes. I mean, Lambert, even the way she dresses, she's got the short haircut and all that stuff. And Ripley's still the more feminine of the two, I guess you'd say. You know, she's got the longer hair and is a little younger and, and taller and all that stuff. And then I love how, you know, this is, this is definitely the 70s because John Hurt is smoking in the space. <laughs> Ship. I mean, only in the 1970s when anybody that was a good idea. But you know, whatever. He's smoking, smoking lucky strikes in the contained air atmosphere. Yeah, those spaceships were designed by the tobacco company, Jay. <laughs> 
yeah, why would you tell me tobacco? We'll have to find that out when we get to uh, that, 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 That's how Wayland started anyway. out. They were a tobacco company. Come on. You didn't know that? <laughs> I did. I, I, I got a pack I of Wayland lights in my pocket I, right my... now. <laughs> I had no idea. But I, I like all this that they don't know what's going on, and then they – they come back in Dallas. Yeah, you know, they gather around the table again, basically. And Dallas says, "Well, you know, we're not home." And Mother's picked up a signal, and company orders say we got to go check it out. And where does the revolt come from? By the two working class, like union blue collar guys, like, nope, that ain't my contract. <laughs> nope, not doing it. And it's only when they read the fine print to them, like, yeah, you're gonna do it, or you forfeit everything you've earned the last, you know, th- five years or however long they've been out there. And I thought that that was really it was again it was more character stuff, and I'm I'm buying all of this for the slow build that it is because at this point we've seen like basically three sets, but we've got so much information yep. here, and I'm I'm yeah I think it. that's it's it's hilarious when Parker and um, Brett are sitting there just kind of going back and forth with their banter, and they're like we're gonna get full shares, right? So their their only concern is about the money and everything, but you know what you can't, you, you can't blame them though because it's of course. like. They got to do most of the work, you know. If something goes wrong, it's on them, you know. The other the guys, you know, they get pilot the ship and land it, but it's like, as you see later in the movie, when stuff breaks down, it's like, yeah, it's them that's got to do it, you know. Yeah, they're they're the Scotty yeah. of the ship, basically. I mean, that's sort of their their gig is to fix everything, and so they decide to set down on this planet. And I love, I, I got to tell you, Nick, I I appreciate sci-fi films that try to do some science fact. And with their science fiction, you know, they they have to go through this whole procedure to undock from the the towing rig and kind of get it in orbit around the planet so it doesn't just spin off into space. And then they do this whole roll into, you know, finding a landing window. And I'm one of those kids that, like, grew up with NASA. So I, I was fascinated by that for years. And so I remember all those, the shuttle videos I've watched and learning about how they have to come in on entry and all that. And they're trying to figure out how the atmosphere is going to work. I, I appreciated the fact that they took time to add in those little subtle details. I mean, it may just be, you know, uh, what am I trying to say? It may just be garble, you know, just just language just to get through the scene. But I like those little touches. I, I think that makes, it's all the subtle stuff that makes this thing work. And it makes me just sort of go in for that world. You know, if they had just zoomed, bang, and landed like you would today, it, it would have lost something. The landing scene is spectacular with the... Um the way the legs come out and you see it just crushing the rocks and everything. And it's not a smooth landing. You know, <laughs> you're seeing uh, Parker and uh, Brett and everything, you know, the steam's all coming out. Yeah, they, have a, they have a fire. They have a fire in the cabin. Yeah. I mean, it's a bad landing. So, so I mean, and that, that's an ominous sign, right? The first thing they land on is yep. hostile to them. And that, that's the first moment when you realize the tension is ratcheting up. You know, it's just a, now we've gone to another level because the landing was terrible. And why wasn't, you know, these are seasoned people. This isn't a rookie crew. Why would they screw that up? You know, well, yep. they're going into something they clearly know nothing about. And then they start talking about what they can do. And oh, the signal's just over there. And it's Kane who says, oh, that's a good walking distance. And I love that little laugh that Dallas gives. Like, yeah, <laughs> you just want an excuse to get off the ship. And, and he uh, clearly, I'm, I don't know how you read that. I look at that as like Dallas thinks that's a horrible idea. That's what I wrote down. But he's going to go along with it because he trusts his XO. I think it's in the director's cut where actually you can hear, they actually play the signal, that transmission that they're hearing, and it's completely alien. I mean, it's it's not any transmission that they know of or anything like that, but 
they still have to go check it out. Now, in the version you watch, I know you watch the um, the theatrical version. Did they have that in there? That, no, they just talk about the fact that they don't know what it's yep. saying, and so they run it through the computer. And it's there's this whole scene where Ash and Ripley are talking, and Ash says, well, you know, I couldn't figure anything out about it. And Ripley says, mind if I take a shot? And he's like, sure. And the way he answers yep. her lets you know there's tension between them, too. And she starts working on it, and it actually doesn't take her very long to figure out, this isn't an SOS. Yep. And he's the one that talks her out of, well, by the time you get there, they'll already be back. You know, no, this, and, is, this is the question I got to yeah. ask. Did yeah. Ash... Ash had to had Ash knew what that signal well, was. Well, see, that, okay, you, you brought that up, and there's at least six other times that I'm wondering, does he know what's about to happen? And I, I don't know. I think you can read it either way. I mean, if you want to go full on that he knows, if he's an android, which we, you know, we know he is because we've seen the movie a, a lot, and and we said it the plot summary. But if you don't know that, it's only on a rewatch that you start to question his every motive, what he actually knows, and what what does the company know. That, that that's that's the question. But yeah. me, I actually, I last time I watched it, I watched it just for Ash. I watched every single one of his like mannerisms, every little thing he does, just the way he talks, how he just you know he pauses when he talks, little smirks on his face. And in my opinion, I've seen this movie probably about eighty times. He knows. He, he has to. I mean, Ripley. I mean, the cat's out of the bag. We everybody knows Ash is as a th- synthetic. He's an android. How can something that's basically that advanced of a computer not decode a message, but Ripley, who's in all intents and purposes an amateur, uh, pretty new to the scene, can, 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 can decode it? How can that happen? I mean, as the warrant officer, she's basically a communications officer and the liaison to the technicians. I mean, she shouldn't be able to do any of that. And she yep. figures it out. So that's the clue. And I think you're right, is that he probably knows way more than... It, of course, he ever lets on. And it's a good question to wonder, does he really know what's happening? Because there's several shots of him just kind of looking. And we'll have to point him out as we go through this. I'm glad you brought that up. Because there's, there's several times when you have to ask yourself on rewatch, does Ash know? And yeah. the, But he goes ahead and lets her do it because he get, knows, well, I can talk her out of it because, yeah, it would take her too long to get out there. And I like, again, that's more realism. They just can't, you know, beam over there. You know, they have, they have to walk over there. And then we get the walk there. We got to talk about the derelict spaceship. It's probably one of the most iconic shots of mm-hmm. the whole film. And I mean, uh, granted, when I watched the Prometheus trailer, the thing that finally hooked me was I saw that thing. And I yep. said, aha, seen that before. And I, I love the whole design of it because it doesn't look like anything I would ever think could fly. Yeah, who knows that a giant croissant could fly? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's, an, it's an awesome design. And just the whole moment that they walk up to there, I mean, you got just you almost like a, I think it's just a little bit dusty in the air and stuff. And they look over and they just see it just sitting there and just the music cue. And then when they get closer, I mean, you can totally tell the thing was designed by Geiger because what's on the side of the ships? You caught what that looks like. Oh, right? yeah, that definitely looks like the entrance to the female anatomy. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of that in here with, with Giger stuff. But even beyond that, the reveal of it, here's the thing. They're walking, and you see they're trying to get a look through the haze, and the reveal is on the monitor. You know, mm-hmm. And I love that. It was a great choice 
by Ridley to say, we're going to do the reveal on the monitor. So it, you see it from Ash and Ripley's point of view, basically. Yeah, which but you, to- get, you get the little lines coming across, and at, the, uh, yeah, the, the transmission isn't clear and everything kind of coming in and out. I mean, yeah, it, it literally was- is something that, you like... Back probably in the 70s or 80s when you're watching TV, when you're watching news reports, that's the way it was when you see something real shocking going on. So it kind of re- I think it resonates more with the viewer when that's happening. It looks like shortwave, closed-circuit broadcast, yep. which is what everybody would know at the time. Yeah, you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. But it also is a telling part of the story, too. Because in, in rewatching, it makes me realize, okay, the three people that are on the ground are all going to get it. And, and it, the people that are on the ship may make it through this thing. Because they're seeing the danger from afar. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. But I like that reveal. And I like that when they get inside the thing, it's nothing like what it looks like on the outside. It's, it's this metal frisbee, or not frisbee, metal croissant boomerang looking structure. Then its entrance, like we've said, is the female anatomy. And then you walk inside and it's like the ribs of a whale. Or something like I'm remembering, you know, the conceptual drawings I saw growing up in church of like Jonah and the whale, you know, Jonah and the fish, you know, and all that. And I'm thinking about all that and I'm going, it's like you're heading into the belly of the beast. And I can't help but think about two years later in Empire Strikes Back when the Millennium Falcon flies into the great, you know, asteroid worm. You know, that, that it has that same sort of feel to it. I mean, I, you've seen this shot a million times, but I think the Alien film really captures it because it's such a creepy place. And isn't that what happens in every haunted house movie? You find the secret passageway, and it's this dark, dank, mysterious, weird place. Actually, a uh, kind of little point I wanted to bring up was um, the derelict ship wasn't the original thought process of Geiger. He wanted to do a pyramid instead of a derelict spaceship. So, Very interesting that he was Yeah, um, you, you can see it. It's, it's like a pyramid-type dome. They kind of took it in AVP. They kind of borrowed from that idea. And Yeah, we're going to get to that. So hold yeah, that. I, I hate bringing up that movie. <laughs> but, um, yeah. but, yeah, originally it wasn't huh. going to be a ship. It was going to be a pyramid, which I'm so glad they went with the ship because it adds so much well, more mystery. Well, it lets you know that they're not on the ship's planet, probably. Yep, that's right. that, the, the it was a it's not from that planet, and the whole thing is later. You know, as soon as they come walking in the ship, what do they find? Oh, they find and the alien an alien being, and we got to talk about that man because that of anything that I you know I said in the intro that I I never got frightened by this film, but there were things that really gave me a rush and creeped me out that I I remember pausing the the big disc thing and then ultimately the VHS and now the DVD multiple times to get a look at what is affectionately known as the space jockey. Yep. And I I am just fascinated by that that scene and the the size of the thing and the whole fossilization and all that. I mean it looks like an elephant and a snake and a it's an alien thing. It's really alien. And they do that lingering shot where like you see its eye and oh it's just so weird. What I like is when they first, after they find it, I mean, you don't really see it at first, but when you see him climbing up onto his platform, and then they do the pullback, and then you see how big it is. The scale does get a little bit jaded, though, because that scene right there when they're climbing up the platform were actually done by children. Right, right. Because um, what happened was this, when they made this scene, Ridley wanted to do a one-to-one scale for it. But Fox originally said, no, we don't even want this scene. The scene does nothing to the plot. There's no point in having this scene in there. And he fought you know, tooth and nail to get it in there, but he had to do it at a reduced scale. But in order to give it the scope that he wanted, he actually had his kids. 
Yeah. <laughs> dress up as the astronauts and then climb onto the platform. Now you can tell when Dallas gets a little bit closer to it to investigate its chest that the scale is a little bit off. It is a little bit jarring when you do see that because all suddenly, you know, it goes from being probably looking like 25 feet tall to probably more like 13, 14. But still, closer, but, but it, it's, you know, I'm just, I'm nitpicking, you know, a perfect but, scene basically, but, but. Well, and I would say this, the box people were wrong because if, it, I mean, this tells you exactly what's going to happen in 10 minutes because you yeah. see the thing's chest blown open. And so when you see that happen in a little bit, you're like, oh, wow, that must have happened to him, too. And maybe that's where everybody else is on that ship. Yeah, there, Lambert, that's the first thing Lambert goes is, where's the rest of the crew? Maybe there wasn't yep. any crew, you know, because the, the uh, space jockey, he looks like he's growing out of the chair. I mean, he is a part of the ship. And it's just, it's 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 a mind, you know, screwed just thinking about, like, just everything about that. I mean, it's just like, and the whole thing is that, that part's completely dropped. It's dropped for the rest of the series. But it's just, it's that one thing that sits there and you're just like, man, that is such a cool scene. And it just, it raises so many questions. And I think it's actually a real clever foreshadowing to not only what happens to the crew, but what could happen to the human species. Because what happens next is Kane finds the cargo hold or what's below the ship or, and it's thousands of eggs. Now, yeah. What were, those egg, what were those eggs doing down there? Well, yeah, I that's, mean, a, I mean, immediately you see that and it's really disconcerting. There's that whole smoky mist going over them and that weird light. Do, and, donated by the who by it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very cool, by the way. Um, but I mean, one of those, one, of, it's just a weird scene. And, you know, it's funny. You talk about the surrealism of that, that scene. It's funny to listen to Ridley Scott's commentary on the 20th anniversary disc that I've got. He talks about, yeah, I've always kind of wanted to go back and see what that race was all about, and now to know that's what's coming in June. It's sort of mm-hmm. like, oh, wow, I'm glad you finally got around to that, really. But, but I, yeah. This is good timing for this podcast. Exactly, yeah. It's almost like we planned it that way. But anyway, that, no, I'm with you. This whole egg scene is that's when, again, the tension goes up yet another level. You know, now we've gone up to three. You know, so, and it's all a mystery and you don't know. And they, of course, they have to go down there and they, they're trying to investigate it. And Kane talks about how hot it is. It's like the tropics. It's just, it's, you know, sweltering heat and having someone who's grown up in the South. And I mean, at the recording of this podcast, we're heading out of the end of spring into our summer here. It's already humid and crazy here. I got out and ran in that uh, today and I, I was going, it's like the tropics out here. You know, I was saying the line from the movie and then I started looking for eggs on the ground and, I, that whole thing is weird because those they look like big leather sacks, and mm-hmm. the liquid is running in the opposite direction on them. And then it just it's, the whole thing is just really, really creepy. And then, of course, what happens, you know what's going to happen when you come up on an egg. It's going to hatch. It's going to open. And the whole opening and what happens next are, again, more iconic moments from this film. Yeah, even before that, though, it's like when he's going down on the uh, his uh, repel, when he's repelling down, just the whole shot where you can just see down and it's just, it's not only like, you know, five or six of these eggs, there's thousands of them and they just, they reach back as far as the eye can see. I mean, it looks like almost the whole underbelly of the ship has those eggs in it. Well, it makes me wonder were these things that whatever the thing in the chair had, you know, is this some of their race? You know, I always wondered that. Yeah, uh, Yeah. It's, it's, 
And that's just like so many just great questions. I mean, you can, you can go so many different ways with it. I mean, could, you know, those have been, you know, knowing more alien lore later, are those the ship, are those the other people the ship? Or could it possibly be that the ship was carrying these for a purpose? Well, yeah. And Maybe see, it just it just got and, out of control and the face hugger ended up getting onto the space jockey and that happened. And what happened to that alien? I mean, it's just like... And like every good first installment of a horror film, they don't explain any of that. And that's what gives the mystique to it. It's because once you start deconstructing all of that, no matter how well it's done, and it can be well done to explain the origin of something. I've seen that. It, it always loses a bit of its luster. When you pull the curtain totally back, it's never the same. You know, if once you've seen Psycho and you hear that in speech about Norman Bates and his mother, you can never watch that movie the same. Once you've seen this movie and you know Ash is the android, you talked about it, you watched it totally from his point of view this last time. So there's, there's no way to not uh, to unknow what you learn about the origins of these things, but for this moment, it's just disconcerting because you don't have any answers to this, and all that's happening is really a lot of happenstance, you know, mm-hmm. or or is it, you know, because they're sent down there on orders. I mean, God, it'll really screw with your head. Yeah, it's it completely does. I mean, just th- thinking about all the different possibilities with, you know, why they were sent down there, you know. And even like Ash, even like earlier in the later, a little bit later in the movie, actually, when Dallas, when Ripley is actually talking to Dallas, you find out that Ash was is the new science officer. Dallas has never done a mission with him before. The company actually sent Ash with them for the first time on this mission. So it's just like all these different questions come arise, and it's just always I think the question everybody asks: Does the company know about this ship? Does the company know about those eggs? Does the company know about the alien? What does the company know? Right, and that's the eternal question. And I, you know, I guess we can hope for answers to that when we get around to Prometheus. But for but for this and just moving forward here, I mean, the thing that happens is the the egg opens and you see that sort of pulsating glob of meat, and then yep. it jumps it's beef, beef beef tripe actually used. Yeah, and then it jumps on his mask and basically bleeds through it and attaches itself to him and they have to get back to the ship and i love the whole bit about when they get back to the ship and ripley is the by the book stand your ground no you do the same thing if i was on the other end we can't open the doors and she's overruled by the science officer not even overruled by the science officer he completely just ignores her and lets them into the door. He doesn't even exactly. talk to her. He just goes up there and like, nope, I'm letting you guys in. Not even a thought, not even a question. And it's like, Ash is on a mission. And it's yeah. like, being the science officer, being someone whose main concern is the health of the people on the ship, why the hell is he letting them in with an organism, an alien organism, something they have no idea about, attached to well, one of their crew member's face. Well, if you don't and, if you don't know he's an android, you've already seen the tension between him and Ripley, your only thought is that maybe he's like a doctor and his concern is for the crew member. You know, so you're supposed to read it that way and not think he's up to no good, but of course once you've seen this, you know he's absolutely up to no good. He's got to get that thing on the ship. And yep. the sooner the better. And so he gets, of course, they get it on and they have to cut the mask off. And that's when you get the, I mean, some of the best effects are when they cut the mask off and the thing wraps its, its tail around Kane's neck harder. And they have to do that whole x-ray. And it's, guy, it's so weird. When he's like grabbing the little, uh, he's got his tongs and he's like trying to like 
basically jar the legs loose on it, you see the tail, I mean, just wrap around its neck, and they know it's like, at Dallas says, he goes, we ain't getting this thing off unless we get this thing off, it's going to tear his face off with him. And then they, then they do the x-ray, and right away Dallas is like, what is going down his throat? They see it, and Ash right away is like, oh, that's how they, that's how, that's got to be how he's like, you know, keeping him breathing and stuff like that. Just completely just blows off Dallas's question. Well, it, it makes sense, though, because it looks like a set of bellows. The little thing's stomach is like it's breathing for him. So you, that's why the non-scientist would buy that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he just gives them the complete, you know, non-answer. And but that, that's but, the but, second but, moment, though. Does he know what it's doing? But the, I, I kind of want to bring up the thing again about when you're talking about, like, you're supposed to read Ash, you know, maybe when he let Kane in that he was caring. That could be, but even at this point, he doesn't even look like he cares about Kane. Yeah. At all. He just, he's cared about this organism, what's going on. So it makes you go back and it's like, you know, he didn't let him in for, because he felt bad for him or like, I can't let another human being possibly die. I got to try my best to save him. He's completely enthralled by this thing. And you just, you just see this the way he's looking at it and just, he's just, his eyes never leave, you know, the computer screen that's doing the x-ray or the actual face hugger itself. He's just completely, and he's gone. He's, you don't even see him at all. With the rest of the crew, you know, the other crew's outside or, you know, Dallas is up in the cockpit later listening to music. He never leaves that room. Yeah, it's very weird how devoted he gets to all of this stuff. Yeah, and mm-hmm. he's not devoted to Kane. He's devoted to the organism itself. Yeah, this, that's an interesting way of reading it. I've never thought of it that way because it just, it plays like he's, if you want to look at it that way, the rest of them aren't picking up on that. They think he's so into watching Kane that that's why he's so devoted to it. You know, even when he and Ripley have that little talk, you know, where she tries to go, look, when Dallas is off the ship, when Dallas and Kane are off the ship, I'm the next one in charge. You know, yep. so you you broke every rule known to the science core by letting that thing on, and he has no real excuse for it. You know, and that's, I mean, she, he just keeps trying to brush her off. And that I love those scenes, though, because, again, we've brought tension back up. Now it's back up to five, you know, because yep. now we're really in the thick of it. But and, actually, there is a scene, though, with Ripley, though, that's I brought up earlier when she questions Dallas about Ash. Because she seems to be the only one that's catching on to this stuff, you know, almost like another, like, horror movie trope is that the survivor girl is the only one who actually is paying attention to what's going on. She's, you know, questioning about Ash going, you know, how well do you know this guy? You know, there's actually a deleted scene, too, where Ripley's talking to Lambert. And I guess it was kind of the norm on this ship that the women have sex with the men and, you know, just to kind of for mental purposes and stuff. And they both ask ask each other, have you ever had sex with Ash? And both of them say no. Interesting. And that, that was a deleted scene, but um, or it probably wasn't even filmed. It's in the novelization that I read, but... Ripley is the only one right now who's kind of seeming to catch on to Ash, and then Dallas kind of drops it subtly, but to me it's a huge reveal, is that Ash is new. Ash is the new guy. I yeah. mean, everybody else, from my understanding, is, you know, Ripley's the new person, so she doesn't know this, what the crew was normally, but he tells her that Ash, this is Ash's first mission with him, that it was he was a last-second replacement. A last-second replacement. Very interesting. Very telling. It's, really, that whole, yeah, it's, that not, whole it's not like the company planned this. So again, the company put this guy on the ship who seems to be more well aware of this creature than, you know, anybody else is. I mean, everybody else is shocked and he's just, he's so analytical about it and stuff. So again, it makes you go back to the question, did the company know about it? And I think it's great. They never give you a clear answer, but I think it's, well, it's obvious they knew something. Yeah. Yeah. They knew something about it. How much is the question? And I think they, they knew more than they didn't know. 
Yeah, and I don't I don't know that we'll ever get the full answers of that, but I I, I, I don't I don't want the full answer. Yeah, again, because I, I, I think, think if you great. if you close that loop totally, it's gonna it probably won't be nearly as satisfying as what you can dream up in your own head. But I uh, think George that, George Lucas, are you paying attention? <laughs> no, clearly not. Uh, so, uh, but no, really, I mean, I think that that's a good you bring up a good point. Is that it, on rewatching it, you start asking yourself these questions and, and you start figuring this out. And I love Dallas's whole motif here because he's asking Ripley, "What all do we got to have?" Have. And it's a great line. It's just one of it, Tom Skerritt does these lines, and it's it's the great line. And she's going, well, "We got to do this, we got to do this." He's like, "Oh, we can take off without all of that, you know." And he's like, "I just want to get out of here, you know." And and he just wants to leave. He's just, for whatever reason, he's totally exasperated with this whole mess. He wants to put everybody back in their ice cubes, and we go to bed, and just we wake up at home, and we figure this out when we get home. And, oh, he's totally, he's totally yeah. the veteran, and she's totally the new person. I mean, yeah, everybody's like that, you know, in their first, you know, their first job or their first time doing their, you know, what their career is or whatever, and you're doing everything by the books. And everybody else who's worked there for years kind of rolls their eyes at you and like, yeah, okay, you know. <laughs> Everybody's got their shortcuts and everybody's got their little hotkeys and stuff and they sit there and kind of roll your eyes at the at the newbies and they're following the book down to down to the T and this is again with Ripley and Dallas where she wants to go through everything and Dallas is just like, you know, Let's get out of here. We don't need to do that shit. Honestly, that whole interplay there reminds me of one of my favorite films of all time, Run Silent, Run Deep, which is a submarine, World War II submarine movie. Clark Gable and Burt Lancaster in it, and that's kind of the roles they play opposite of each other. And th- mm-hmm. this always reminded me of that. It's very much like a submarine movie where you've got the seasoned vet captain who knows the shortcuts and just wants to get on and do things, and you've got the new um, hotshot lieutenant or whatever that's on on the way up and is trying to you know, follow everything because, you know, look, Dallas is maybe at the end of his career or something, or certainly more further in it than, than Ripley is. Ripley's at the beginning of hers. And mm-hmm. so that, or you get that sense, at least. And I like that. I like that little interaction there. And they decided to take off. And as they're flying back to the, they're, as they're redocking with the refinery and they get ready to take off, that's when they get the news that there's been a change in Kane's condition. You need to come down here and check it out. And the change is the thing is not on his face anymore. Yep. And now, here's my question with your if Maybe you can try to help me with this. Ash never has left Kane. And all suddenly when Ash leaves, the face hugger seems to die and disappear. I just, I don't know. I, I was just, when I was watching this movie the other day, I was just like, it kind of hit me. It's like, maybe it died and fell off. And then was Ash trying to hide it or something? I, it just seems weird that the thing would crawl up real high and die. And just Ash happens to be gone during that moment. I think he, I honestly, in rewatches, I think you can say he watched it get off the thing's face, go away and die. As, and then, or maybe he planted it so it would fall on Ripley just so he could get her. You know, I don't know. That's kind of a cheap See, I'm, I'm thinking, though, he wants to bring it yeah. back, though. And, you know, knowing Dallas and Ripley and everything, if they would find it, they would want to, you know, jettison it from the space shuttle. Right, but, you know, but he doesn't he doesn't let it get out of the science lab. They all think it may have, but he doesn't let it get out of there. So I think he knows exactly a lot more than he's letting. I think he knows. He probably knew when it got off the off of Kane's face. And- the, one, one, the one problem I have with the scene though is like they see what this thing does. I mean, the thing attaches to your face and it ain't letting go, and they're just kind of nonchalantly walking around there with these little poker things. It's like, oh yeah, yeah. The I'd, I'd, I'd be yeah. scared to death. No, I would be I- like, you know, I'm not looking around here. Man. Well, but, this but here's the, and get here's the thing face. though. Think about it like this: Kane had on his full gear, and the thing ate through it to get to him. So what are you going to put on? 
You know, I'm, I, I, I'm, a, I'm like, I'm using the escape shuttle guys. Screw you guys. I'm going home. Okay. You pull the Cartman on them right from the gate. Uh, I, I would have to at that point because, you know, Dallas has got some big balls, man. Cause, and Ripley. I mean, I, I, I couldn't be, I couldn't be, especially looking around there like that. It's like those corners. I mean, I still watch that. I'm just like thinking, I'm like, God, if I was them, I'd be, I'd be scared out of my mind. I don't like spiders. It's like, this, this thing's a giant spider. But you got to remember who these characters are. These people deal with problems all the time, hauling these things to and fro across space. And we've seen them do that. So this is just another thing for them to have to solve. And they're kind of rough and tough, and they can handle it. I mean, look, they rig up cattle prods out of nowhere you know, hunting for the thing and the the little air density changers and all that. I mean, they come up with all this stuff throughout the film and they're able to adapt to the situation. So I never thought much more about it other than they were looking for what the heck happened to it. Of course, it falls dead out of the ceiling and they get that little gag. And th- now I'm going to tell you, man, you talk about some of the sexual imagery of this film. When Ash is like probing around on it, th- dude, that is real. I'm surprised they got away with that. I mean, yeah, that is that is incredibly blatant. Now, we're not going to say anything more about it, but if you're an adult, you, you look at that and go, oh, I know what that is, or what it's yeah. supposed to be, and it's yeah. really weird. My my question, though, too, is um, even like going back to when they found the derelict spaceship, even though it's shocking for us and shocking somewhat for the characters, they didn't seem that surprised. So my question are, is... These aren't the first alien beings that these people have that know of. I mean, they probably, I think that they've encountered some stuff, you know, whether it's just, you know, lower life forms like, you know, microbes or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Microbes or, you know, single cell organisms or even, even like, you know, mice type aliens or something. Uh, wait like wait a minute. I mean, they're hauling mineral ore across the galaxy. Some race somewhere else probably mined that. You know, I mean, I, th- I have no problem accepting the fact that this is a society of Earthlings that has been not only aware of, but in touch with alien life forms for many, many years. You know, we have like trade negotiations with them, which, by the way, George Lucas, this is how you do that storyline. But anyway, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I buy that totally. I can I can go with that. I have no problem with that, that that wouldn't phase them. But the fact that maybe hostile organisms aren't something they've encountered before, you know, and I I like the fact that there's that built into this. That these these people are basically like we said, they're working people, they're truckers, they're you know they're they're engineers and scientists. They're not um, soldiers. They're what our uh, today, Nick, our astronauts would be. A lot of our astronauts come out of the military, but NASA is not a military organization. You know, the space shuttle and the space station and stuff does not. I mean, they do intelligence work, maybe, but they don't do they don't fire stuff off into space as much as Ronald Reagan wanted it to. I mean, we don't we don't have any of that. So I mean, that's not how this works. So I, I can buy that, and I'm I'm digging it. But Kane wakes up is the next thing, and they're like, hey, you know, and I love the whole banner back and forth, like, how you doing? I'm fine. Next dumb question, you know, it's like, yeah, I just had something on my face, moron. You know, thanks a lot. But but they're they're going through their bit, and it's. I love how, and you can just see, like, oh, this is a terrible idea. Oh, i got to have something to eat before we go back to sleep. Oh, that's not going to end well. Yeah, I just, again, back back at the dinner table, and this is the last time we're going to see them all together. But Yeah, yeah and it's the scene that, like we said, got the movie made. I mean, this was this whole bit. was It's in the middle of all that banter again, and he, all of a sudden, Kane starts choking. And they think he's having a seizure. And I love I love how they all react to that. Like they know exactly what to do. They're pinning him down. They're putting the you know 
the spoon in his mouth so he doesn't bite his tongue off. I mean, all that is actual procedure of what you do, but what happens next is not what they were prepared for. At least not all of them. Yeah, those sounds he was making too as he's grabbing his chest and stuff and oh, yeah. he's, you know, convulsing it. You could hear like just all the air escaping from his lungs and stuff and from his stomach. It's it almost sounds like a belch, but just something much more deeper, and then all of a sudden you hear the Yeah. The and little... he stop it's almost he stops because he's shocked. And then he starts going at it again and stuff like that, and the whole time what's Ash doing? He's just, just watching. Kind of sitting there. Yeah, he's got he's got a little smirk on his face, a little tiny smirk on his face. Just kind of like, and he was watching him the whole time when they're doing like the at the dinner table. He's staring at him, and, and if you watch that now, I'm going. Does he does he know what's about to happen? He he definitely knew. I mean, even back when Ripley and him were talking, back when the face hugger was still on Kane's face, he was looking on the computer screens and looking at more X rays and stuff. And as soon as Ripley came in, he just kind of moved his hand over and turned it off. So he he had he he knew he knew exactly what was happening. He was waiting for it. Well, it's it's a powerful scene, and then like you say, that it just boom right out of his chest. I would tell you, this film won an Academy Award for its visual effects, and I think it's uh, largely because of some of those big sweeping shots that we've talked about. But this one is the money maker because the the way they set it up. And the way they do it, the reaction from the actors, because they didn't, you know, they, they hit them, they surprised them with the blood spurting all over them and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. The, the reactions are natural, and it is indeed horror and shock. And I love how it just goes dead silent, mostly, except for Lambert kind of crying in the background and the thing crawling up out of his chest. Because that's exactly what, I don't know what I would say either. I would be in total ghastly shock. Yeah, every, everything, even the alien is in shock almost in a way, because it comes out of it, and then it's just—it's almost like a gopher, you know, looking around, and it's just kind of. <laughs> and this has been parodied so many times now that I don't even know it's a. If if you've seen, you've probably seen the parody of it if you haven't seen this film, folks, and that's sad to me in a way because this is, if you watch it in context and are going with this movie, that this will blow your mind. I mean, this is where tension goes up to eight. What is that? And then it scoots across the table and is gone. And uh, but but Ash is holding everybody back. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. That's another one of those. I'm like, why the heck not? Yep. He didn't. He didn't want him to touch it because you see Parker grabs a knife or like a big uh, big skewer or something like he's gonna go and stab it. Ash right away puts out his hand. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. And right when he's you know the thing scampers away and stuff and Ash Ash was protecting it. I mean, yeah, exactly. Right after that, what is he? I mean, nonchalantly. Ash calls him in a scene later, Kane's son. Yeah, it's very, very odd how his relationship with it. I mean, I guess, again, knowing what we know about him, it's hard not to think that he knows. He's just waiting for all these things to happen so that... And I don't know what his plan is. If he thinks this is going to kill everybody else and keep him alive so it can get back to Earth, I don't. that seems like... Waylon Yutani needs to examine their business models a little bit more. But anyway, maybe they don't know what this is. Maybe they, that leads me to think maybe they don't know what they've got here. But I, I don't know. It's very, it's very weird. I actually, I, I'll be honest with you. I think, and having watched this a number of times, I think he was hoping to get dinner over with and get them all back in the freeze because then it would have been in stasis the whole way home. And then when they got back on Earth, it's controllable. But when it gets loose on the ship, it, I think Ash already knows, well, we're all screwed. So you know, there's nothing we can do. So because, but, he, but even if it got out though, Ash would be safe. You know, I don't think the thing would kill Ash because he's not a human being. I mean, 
it is it's walking around, but he could very I don't know. Well, let's let's talk about what happened next because this is a question I've often had, Nick. That they gather together and they get those you know a couple flame throwing units together, which I believe guys like Brett and, and Parker could throw together. And yeah, they do it on they do it on MythBusters every other episode. Exactly. Yeah. So these guys would know what they were doing, and they've got the little um, air density. Change you know something we can track it with. I call that the barrels, the Jaws barrels of the Alien movie. Like we gotta have something that shows where the thing is when we don't see it, right? <laughs> we we hadn't seen it yet, and so they're gonna chase it around the ship, and they're they're trying to find it through all these little ducks, and they're closing off areas, and it gives you a sense that how big the ship is and how hard it would be to find something like that on it. But they're just hunting the thing down. And here's my question to you: Is the alien hunting and picking them off like? standard slasher movie trope or is it an animal cornered and defending itself i don't know i mean when i when at when brett you know when he's chasing after the cat i think he just walked in the wrong area i mean the thing obviously wasn't chasing after him it was it was you know up in those chains and just sitting there and stuff and i think just brett walked in at the wrong place at the wrong time and i think even later with you know dallas that he was in the wrong place at the wrong time i mean dallas was hunting it yeah and I think after that point, I think, you know, maybe it got a taste for the blood or something, or maybe it just got pissed off, and it just then it decided to change its modus operandi and go after the rest of the crew. But, yeah, I think... That's what I'm wondering. It doesn't strike me as a hunter. That's the thing. Like, I don't get the sense that this thing's hunting them more than it's it's just going through its life cycle, and they happen to be in its way, you know? Yeah, um, I think you're exactly right. I mean... I think another interesting point, though, is how fast that thing freaking grows. I mean, yes, it's uh, unbelievable. I mean, and, and that, we got we didn't call him out in the cast, but Balaji Badeo is the the guy they got to play the alien. He's a seven foot graphic designer, <laughs> oddly enough, and he's this this tall, lanky guy that they got to put in the suit. And I want to tell you, at no time do I ever get taken out of the film reality to go it's a guy in a suit like the way he moves is so kind of graceful and weird you know and maybe you, know, you never see the yeah. alien uh from especially from the head yeah you never see it directly in the screen i mean you'll see like its jaw opening up but you'll never see its actual whole face looking at you you'll see it from side to side or and you'll see bit, bits and pieces of it but it's always hidden in the shadows and that's the thing is that brett you know finds like its skin like a snake skin you know like it's molted and it's getting bigger and bigger and when it comes down out of the chains and gets him this thing is huge and th- that that shot of the teeth and boom right into the head that that my dad said oh, you're going to love this thing because this thing will it shoots its teeth out and just gets people and yep. i remember talking about that and i couldn't imagine that until i saw it and i was like you got to be kidding me i mean it's, that is the weirdest like weapon for uh, a monster or a killer that i may have ever seen yep it's just geiger being geiger with that i mean it's a reverse uh, sexual thing with that with something shooting out of its mouth i mean it's 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 messed up and scary and freaky and awesome all at the same time its tongue is a weapon basically which is yep. and, and it's its feeding tube and i was like, oh it's just, god there's so many different things you can think about that's a boom great moment you know and then he takes bread up into the rafters and there's the cat you know and that then they're all running around or going, unless, or unless you're watching the director's cut which is a little bit different with uh it there's actually two different scenes uh the one in the director's cut uh, Parker and Ripley come running in right when he gets pulled up and they get blood squirted all over him. Well, see, I get that Parker saw it because he talks about the thing being huge. 
you know, yeah. he got there just in time to see it going away with him. You know, and yeah. I'm almost glad though that I've seen the theatrical so many times because I like that it's not a splatter shot for them. You know, like we've had some yeah. splatter in this movie, but it's not really a splatter flick. You know, it's again going back to like Halloween. It's, you don't really see the blood; you just see the guy get hung on the door, and that's just yeah. really frightening. And I, that this to me is the guy getting hung on the door. You know, it's, yeah. yeah. But the other scene, actually, they made that you can see on the, the, the deleted scenes is they come running in and actually grab a hold of Brett, and they're actually having a little tug of war with him with the alien as the alien eventually rips him up and, you know, it doesn't rip him up, but, you know, rips him out of the hands and, you know, scoots away and stuff. That would have played all wrong. I, I, I like the fact that they, they're not even able to get to him quick enough. Again, that, yeah. that works better for me. Like, I, I think that it's better because it happens so fast that there's nothing they could have done, you know, because that, that raises the stakes to you're fighting something. You don't even know what it is. And let alone when you see it in action, it works and moves so fast. You've got no chance. You want the crew to be on the same level as you, because you really don't even see it. I mean, you see the face and even though like Parker says, the thing's huge. Yeah, we know it's huge, but we don't know what it is. And you kind of want the crew to be the same way. You don't want the crew to know more than you. You don't want the crew to actually been able to see this thing, and then are talking about it. And you're like, dude, I don't know what the hell you're talking about because I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. You know. Then you kind of get kind of mad and stuff. But actually, another thing in the director's cut was actually when Brett comes walking into the cat, they show kind of close up to the chain, and they do show the creature actually just hanging there. Oh wow! But, you, but, but the thing is though, you. You catch it on the second and third viewing of it because you, you, you're walking at it, you're like, oh my god, it's right there, but it kind of blends in in a way. Well, see, and I like the fact that they, they do play with its camouflage, you know, that it's able to sort of hide in those dark places. And isn't that always the, the trope of the, the really good thriller films? Is And I, again, I go back to Halloween, that reveal when Jamie Lee Curtis backs up into the wall and that slow light comes on Michael Myers' face as he's coming out of the closet after her. I mean, that's mm-hmm. sort of how the alien works in this, too. And in that, in the end, that really is, is there. But I like that. I like that it's hidden and that if maybe you can go see it on repeat viewings, but you don't catch it the first time. I hate it when you see everything the first time. That just It ruins the tension. Because tension is now on nine, and I mean it's it's it, this is really bad. You know, not only is it killed Kane by basically coming out of him, but it just killed Brett by you know eating his head essentially in in front of us. And it's so big we don't know what we can do. So they've got to find a way to chase it, and that that's when Dallas goes into the. Uh, the air ducts trying to trap it and chase it down. And I, I'm going to tell you, that's when I realized, well, Dallas clearly is not the main character of this film because the leader never goes into the dark place alone and comes out alive. Yeah. <laughs> Again, man, Dallas, Dallas has got some balls. Oh, well, not, not only that, but it would be the thing he would do, you know, because he's that kind of guy. He's that take charge, rough and tough dude or whatever. But if you kill him... You now totally disrupt the balance on the ship. The XO is dead. The chief tech is dead because you get the sense that Brett has been doing it longer than Parker. Parker's kind of a hothead. You've got Lambert, who's a who's a basket case at this point. Parker's you know insane with with anger. Ash seems to be completely disconnected from everybody, and Ripley doesn't know what she's doing. So I mean, yep. you, when you kill Dallas, you now throw the whole dynamic off, and it forces. 
Ripley to then become the leader. And the way that happens so fast and the way it's played by Sigourney Weaver and the character move there is fantastic. It's why Ripley becomes the character she becomes in later installments, I think, because she carries this so well. She's so decisive after that moment. And I, I love it. But let me ask you this. What do you think happens to Dallas? Does it kill him or does it take him away? I mean, what? You don't ever know. Yeah, um, well, no, no blood, do, you know. In a delete in the director's cut, a deleted scene, they do actually show what happened to Dallas, and what happened to Brett is um, the alien actually took their bodies. They were, you know, Dallas was obviously still alive when he took them, and he actually, whether he spit some type of secreted resins out of his body or whatever, is actually transforming them into an egg. Ooh, weird. Very weird. Yeah. So yeah, Ripley later finds in the later in the movie. When we get to that scene, I'll explain a little bit more, but yeah, it's he basically a deleted scene shows that he was still turning him into an egg. Ridley, you know, a lot of alien purists out there, a lot of people don't like James Cameron, you know, for whatever reason. They seem to champion the scene and, you know, rip later on the alien queen and stuff like that. But even Ridley Scott says it's it's kind of stupid in a way. It's you know it doesn't really make much sense because it's kinda wasteful. I mean, you need the egg and then a host to bring a birth to an alien. Well, now you need another one to become an egg, and then another one to become an alien. So you need two people per. Yeah, that's not it's, a real convenient way of reproducing yourself. Like that is no. It's a, you, you, like need, it you need two. You need two hosts to to make one, and that's yeah, well, to me that's not a very you know well, streamlined way of producing. It doesn't seem like something that would be naturally evolved. But then again, you could actually argue that you know what, in absence of a queen alien, that a warrior alien or a lone alien would do this to make more eggs, and hopefully one would eventually become a queen, but we're getting into stuff with aliens yeah, already. Yeah, yeah, we're getting too far ahead. Let me ask you this, though, because you've read the, the script. Was the whole turning them into something else in the original script, or was that something they just shot? That was in the script, the uh, Giller, the Geiler script, and not in the O'Bannon script. Okay, because that was then. Now I'm glad they dumped that because that was a bad idea. Because so, that would that would not have played right at all. So. Even Ridley Scott says it was a bad idea, and even his director's cut, he disown. He doesn't disown it, but he's like, this isn't really my director's cut. The director's cut was the one I released theatrically. That was my vision. I had all this stuff in there. His original cut was three over three hours. But but he cut it down into the version he wanted it to release, and that was one of the first scenes he cut because he said it doesn't really make much sense and actually slows down the movie in the end when Ripley's trying to escape the ship that she would find this. Yeah, that's it. That is that is when that happens. It's right there at the end. You're right. I've seen the deleted scene, so yeah, you're yeah. right. That, that is and then and then she uses the flamethrower to burn him alive, even though the ship's gonna blow up in you know five minutes. It's uh, it's yeah, that make it slows down the movie. It doesn't make a lot of sense, and it's it's a deleted scene that was deleted for a reason, and it's just it is what it is, but. Yeah, I mean it. It exists, but it, it, I'm glad it's not in this cut. But now, now everything hits fast forward, Nick, and that's what I love. The last third of this film really hits the. I mean, hits the gas. You know, Ripley's now in charge. She finally reads the secret message from from Mother and gets the whole bit about you know crew expendable and all that. And well, what does she do right after Dallas dies? She enters that room that he entered in the beginning of the movie. Right. Right. And I think that's kind of her coming out party. That's her, you know, basically, I'm now the main character of this movie. And right as soon as she does that, I mean, you were so correct in saying in the beginning, as soon as she does that, your 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 focus goes right to her and you accept that she's the main character now. She's the heroine. Yeah, because she's the one making decisions. Everybody else is a mess. 
at this and point. And she's and she's you know not she's being very nonchalant with what she's typing in the computer and stuff about what the alien is and everything. And you know when she gets the the priority sent from the company that basically alien is priority one. All of their pri- priorities sended and crew expendable. Yeah, that's that's the big reveal. It's when you realize. I mean, think about too when this came out. Nick, this is in the 1970s. All right, lot. I mean, we think we got economic problems now. They they had some serious economic problems then. Everybody felt like they were getting screwed by the man. Right? So what a statement to make that it's the man who is really killing these people. <laughs> you know, it's, yep. it's their order that the company cares nothing about you, no matter what they say. You are expendable. They want the product. And they'll go through hell or high water to get it. And I, I love that, though. I love that whole sensibility because then it allows you to let Ripley make the decision she makes, which you could, you know, deem as reckless. You know, she decides to blow the ship up and all this other stuff. No, that totally makes sense now. You're like, yeah, yeah, burn it down. You know, burn the factory down. Who cares, down. man? I mean, that yeah, ain't her, that, that her spaceship. That's their spaceship. Screw it, man. Blow that shit up. <laughs> this all comes from Bridge on the River Kwai, if you've ever seen that film. I'm going to tell you, if you're a Star Wars fan, by the way, you owe it to yourself to watch Alec Guinness in that movie. But he realizes the futility of what they've been doing the whole time, and he blows the bridge you know, at the pivotal moment. That's exactly what Ripley's doing here. And I love that. I love that we're able to take that ride with her. And the fact that everything goes down between her and Ash, and I'm going to tell you, that is one of the most brutal attack scenes I've ever seen. I mean, I don't know that you could even shoot that nowadays. The stuff he does to her is so perverse and so wrong. He basically tries to choke her by shoving a rolled-up magazine down her throat. I mean, how yeah. twisted is that? Even, like, right before that, though, right after she gets done with the computer, Ash is right behind her. You know, you didn't hear him come in. Oh, yeah. He's just, he's just, he's just standing there. She turns around, and he's like, there is an explanation for this. And you're like, Wait. and then you just realize, yep, he's a bad guy. He's a bad guy. And it's almost like he's such so in love with the alien creature that he almost tries to imitate it in a way by, you know, the facehugger shoving, you know, the birthing tube down the, uh, the holster Kane's throat. He's almost doing the same thing. You know, it's almost, you know, like he's grabbing the the paper. The nonchalant way he slaps her around and, like, pulls her hair out. And, you know, she hits him, and that's when that little milk starts running down his face and stuff. And then he just goes ape. Oh, great, that. great shot. Yeah. He just do a close-up of it. Just a little twitch, you know. Just yeah. Like, and I'm going to tell you, at that point, I'm like, what's that? I mean, that is so weird, right? Because that's when you know he can't be real, you know. And You notice, you notice the whole movie, too, is... He's always drinking milk. Yeah, and that now that all starts to pay off. It makes sense. Again, those little subtleties that just start to pay off and make sense. And in the hands of people who aren't competent, all that gets blown away early or it never it never pays off. In the hands of competent people, it works. And it makes it makes all of it work. And the, the fight is great. And then Parker comes in and smacks him with the fire extinguisher and basically breaks his head off. And now the, it, this is bad special effects. He's walking around with like kung fu hands for a second. They're locked in place, which is hilarious. But I love that it, that it's you know big old tough rough and tumble road warrior Parker who comes in and basically breaks the robot and realizes that that Ash is an android. He's been playing them the whole time. Now, I got to ask this, I know this is a little bit more graphic than whatever, but to me, you know, the alien, how does the alien reproduce? It rapes the host. 
did it almost seem like Ash was trying to do that to Ripley? But you know, he's a he's a machine. He do, obviously doesn't have you know reproductive organs. That he was almost trying to do that to her, just with the just, just with the magazine and the magazine in the mouth. I mean, it's just that. Well, that's what I was getting at. I mean, that's that kind of assault is. Um, an affront. I mean, it's supposed to be shocking and really get you unsettled because, I mean, he could just choke her to death, right? Or he could oh, he hit could, her. He could, just, he could just smash her head in, but yeah, he's but, deciding but to he, use an object rolled up like rolled up like a phallic object exactly. and use that and, and shove it in her mouth. I mean... I don't think there's any a mistake in that either. I think that what they're trying to do is show you that he, even though he is an android... He can get really ticked off, and so he decides, not only am I going to kill you, I'm going to degrade you in every way possible while I'm killing you. Yep. You know, I, I would go with that. Yeah, I mean, it's uncomfortable, and it's unsettling to talk about, and nowadays you, you could never even make that. I mean, that would never happen, but I, I like that they go there with this, and, and it makes, it, again, it's another thing that puts you so squarely on Ripley's side. You know, the, now you want her to... to get away with it and to win because she just got totally screwed you know even when he's doing that though i mean you're you're the first time you watch and i can only imagine you think she's probably gonna die because exactly they just, they yeah. just killed off the main character everybody's fair game i mean oh yeah you, i mean you totally think this is dystopian at this point everybody's gonna get it you know i mean yeah, yeah this is everybody's gonna die you know yeah, and it's, if it's if it's by the alien now it's gonna be by one of their own who at yeah. that like i said at that point you don't even know he's an android but then you know well, now, parker, what, no, parker knocks off his head and i just think this is the most unsettling thing in the movie i mean we've seen a lot of unsettling yeah. things but it's just Ash and just his nonchalant attitude to the people that he's you know served with, and just again being a product of the man, being a product of this company, and he's just no non just nonchalantly tells him he knows I admire this thing, and it's 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 perfection is only matched by its hostility. And well, but see, and that's a, when he says that line, it goes back to something I asked you earlier: is the thing hunting them, or is it just ticked off at them? And I happen to think it's one of those things that it's trying to be what it's trying to go and hide like it normally would but when it gets attacked it just goes all out it's like okay fine that's how you want to play and i think the thing is is a volatile well it's it's just like a rattlesnake you know i I, look i'm not a snake fan okay but if you leave the snakes alone they'll leave you alone but if you start screwing with one it's not gonna let go i think i think in a way yeah i mean i think it's it smells their fear now i think you know if you would have just they would have left the thing be alone. It probably would have just done its own thing and stuff, and that right. would have been it. I mean, we don't even know if this. We don't even know if it's eating this thing. We don't even know if it even has to eat. I mean, yeah, yeah, we know nothing about. That's the again the beauty of it. We know nothing about what's happening with it. But yeah, but at the, at this point, though, like even Ash says hostility. Yeah. Well, hostility to me that means that you know what something's hostile when you provoke it, and and then this thing and this thing's now been provoked, and he's telling it this thing's a perfect organism and you guys have no chance of killing it and you guys are screwed. And that answers another question. He knows all of that. So clearly somebody else knew that to program that in him. He didn't yep. just figure that out. He's not an intuitive machine. He's programmed. So I that leads me to think that yes, he has known all of this was a possibility all along. Yep, he even says he goes, I admire its purity and it's it's just such such an evil thing to say. Yeah, I, I, well, I, I, admi- I admire it. Even though it's killing you guys, it's pure, and you're not. It, well, and Ian I, Holm and his delivery here is what sells this because oh, he, he is, comes off. He's just fantastic. Oh yeah, he comes off like a humanoid. 
you know, like, I, well, I look like you, and I, yeah, I've worked with you, but you mean nothing to me because I don't have feelings. I, I wouldn't. Why would I care? I'm here to do my job, and my job was to get this thing back. And, you know, yeah, I do admire it because yeah. it's mu- much like me. It has evolved beyond emotion. It's, it's almost like it's almost like a spouse cheating on you or something because it's like yeah I cared about you at first but now I don't care about you I care about this other person huh sucks to be you you know yeah total betrayal Brian and I talk about this all the time on the art of slaying the betrayal moment in the Buffy series and it's always real impactful or at least it's supposed to be and and sometimes it works better than others but when it works man it really just unnerves you and that's the whole point of this is that it's a slow down we got to slow down the pace for just a second but it also moves things up to 10 because now it's it's on i mean there's there's nothing left and well, after it's it's letting the last it's it's the last it's the last it's the last rise before the last dip of the roller coaster i mean exactly it yeah and it, and it, i love his last line to him is that i can't lie to you about your chances but you have my sympathies and he just kind of smiles and that's like oh that's it so. And, and the thing that kind of makes you mad, too, is, you know, you realize that he obviously knows more about it than they know about it, and he gives them no help at all. It's exactly. just like, he could. He could totally say, you know, yeah, you you know, your best chance is to get in the shuttle and get out of here and escape and everything like that. He's just like, no, I, I like this thing more than you guys, so um, have fun dying. But exactly, I, I, I yeah. want to bring up another thing, though, another deleted scene that actually, it's it's deleted. You can see bits and pieces of it on YouTube and on the Quadrilogy uh, Blu-ray set and what have you, but uh, there was a scene that they filmed and they cut it out because it made the alien look too much like a man in suit. But after Dallas dies, Parker, Lambert, and Ripley do find it, and it's actually kind of in a fetal position by an airlock. And Parker is ready to actually hit the airlock and shoot it out, but Ash hits the alarms and it scares it off. It's in the it's. It it, it 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 completely it eliminates everything with Ash later and stuff because right there you realize his modems right I mean at before that before his modems come out I mean you're kind of questioning it you're kind of guessing it you're going around the long the right path but you know you know it doesn't get confirmed until then but yeah it, it's it's an okay scene I guess but it's too much too soon that know? that sounds like something that would be done today and would be the wrong thing to do in the film I mean it would it would totally blow the tension you know well, today today that scene would have been filmed and then the scene with him and Ripley later would have been cut or that would have oh, been filmed exactly you know yeah. the studio is not going well we got two scenes that basically do the same thing let's do the more safe one and cut out the one that's a little bit more risque, you know? Uh, you're exactly right, and I'm glad they didn't keep that because that would have been a terrible way to reveal all of it. It's so much more effective this way. But again, talking about decisive Ripley, she's the one that says, we're going to blow up the ship. We're going to get in the shuttle, take our chances. We're blowing up the ship. And Parker and Lambert are like, let's go. I have to ask, though, what Titanic designer built this spaceship? They, they have this escape shuttle, and... I don't even know if it even supports three people, let alone the actual crew. You got seven people. We're not talking about 700 people. This isn't the, I mean, come on, the USS Enterprise has enough escape pods. The Millennium Falcon has enough escape pods. And this ship only can house maybe two people? Come on. Okay, I, I will retcon it only to this point that this would would explain why they didn't get off the ship to begin with, is that they are supposed to stay for that no matter what, because on their own company orders and, the, you know, anything that they do where they violate company orders, they violate their contract, they don't get paid. These people obviously work for a living. They, they're going to stay with their cargo and their crew 
uh, until the bitter end and that the, the escape pod would be the last resort. I guess you could say it that way, but no, I'm with you. They don't have more than one on the ship that size. That well, you, can, you can almost no recount it a little bit more and maybe that the company swapped out escape shuttles or something and told them they had to do a limited one to know that maybe if yeah. they came across the alien that getting on the escape shuttle would only wouldn't be the first line of you know things they would do because it would be impractical because they would have to leave some behind or I I don't know but yeah I mean I mean I, it's a novel idea going down with a ship someone should have told that cruiser captain over in the uh, Mediterranean about that instead of <laughs> jumping off but <laughs> not not everybody's Dallas I guess but so but no they decide we're blowing this thing up and I'm gonna tell you as a kid who grew up. The son of a, a man who worked in power plants, you know, my whole life and his the bulk of his career. I totally love the way that she has to self destruct. It's not loading up with grenades or bombs. She turns the coolant system off. What better way to blow up a power plant than to kill the cooling system? I love that. Again, it's one of those little subtle details, but I've always appreciated that. And I think that may be one of the reasons my dad really liked this, because he could buy the realism of this, was that that would be how you would blow this thing up, is that you turn off, you turn off the air conductors and the water coolant, and what happens in, the, in a refinery? It gets too hot and it explodes. Yep. It's, it's almost like in the book, if you ever read the book The Shining, I mean. That's... Yes, it's just like the boiler in The Shining. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Yep, they just gump. You just. It's not like. I think it would have been completely hokey if it would have been like, oh, we have a self destruct button on this. Yeah, that, like, yeah, that didn't make any who sense. Who designed that? That's a, that's a, that's a bigger design <laughs> flaw than the 6x6 six six opening on the Death Star. Either, either that or it's worse than the non compatible escape shuttle issues. But yeah, but I like that they set all that stuff up, right? And they're trying to get everything set down. And of course. You know, you know it wasn't gonna last. Parker and Lambert get cornered by the thing and get taken out. And what is what is one of the most horrific scenes? You know, what we saw Ash try to do to Ripley is nothing compared to what this alien does to Lambert. He takes his tail, which has got this spike on it, and you don't see this. Okay, again, this is one of those implied bits of horror. But I, Nick, I think he takes it and jams it straight up her, and that it's supposed to be visceral and unsettling, and it's every bit of that. Yep, it's just it's one of those scenes where we know what happened, but no one wants to talk about what happened. Yeah. <laughs> and then what when Ripley comes in, Lambert's naked. I mean that's it's it's such a quick shot, but you see that she has no clothes on. Yeah, exactly. Like he's ripped her her whole being apart. Basically, it's, it's so weird. And then Parker and it kind of grapple. They go in the the collar and elbow tie up for a bit. And I love how he goes out swinging. You know, because that's what a guy like Parker would do. But what happens? He gets punched right through the skull. Well, freaking Lambert. It's like get out of the way. Get out of the way. But she's so terrified. She's in shock. I mean, I mean, you can't blame her in a way. I mean, everybody can sit there. Everybody can sit there in a the movie theater and be throwing throwing popcorn and saying, "Get out of the way! Get out of the way, you stupid idiot!" But she's in shock. I mean, you can't blame her. And then even when Parker's getting killed, she's still standing there because she's in complete shock. Her body is shut down. I mean, she's just standing there and like, "Oh my god!" You know. And it, it's almost like in a, in another movie. It would be Parker and Ripley, the ones setting it up, and Lambert's doing something. You would never guess that it's going to take out two and one blow. Right, and but the, see again, as, as Ripley has progressed to become the leader, what have we seen about Lambert? She's basically digressed into a basket case, to where at the end, there's nothing she can do to help her friend. Yeah, she's you know, kind of so, a piggy from Lord of the Flies right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, really, she is. That's a good call. And actually, and, you know what? There's so much of this movie that actually relates to Lord of the Flies, even with you know the 
that Dallas being the adult of of there, and then he getting taken out, and all that's left are you know the flies, really, you know. Well, here here's the thing, and I, this is the part that is only sort of I don't know if you see it like this or not, but I think it kills both of them virtually at the same time. Even though we see it in different pieces, I think it's grappling with Parker and punching his skull in while it does the whole tail screw bit to her. And that to me is, is even more, you know, dastardly that it can not only it could kill two people in one setting, but it can basically do it while not even looking at one. Yeah. That's that is a a being you can't go against. What are you going to do? You know, yeah. and that's and of course that sends Ripley into just overdrive and she's trying to shut down the the or she's trying to turn the coolant system back on. And unfortunately, much like in real life, you, I don't care if it says you've got a minute to turn it back off. You ain't turning that back on. Yeah, <laughs> and, actually, I, and I love that. I love that though how that doesn't work because she tries to do it and it's like, nope, you've done started it. And it's another way the company screws you. You know, its own safety measures aren't really safety measures. I, I even have to kind of go back and think, you know, about, you know, what were Lambert and Parker doing? They were getting supplies. Well, right. why would you need supplies if going to hypersleep? It goes back, and I don't, maybe that space shuttle only had one hypersleep chamber in it. Maybe they were that expensive and stuff, and they were doing cost-cut measures. But, yeah, I mean, they were collecting supplies for the long trip because I think they thought they were going to be out there for a long time, and that's what they were down there doing. Right. Getting, they, getting supplies, and then Ripley, you know, she goes making a run for the space shuttle, the escape shuttle, and that's when the alien is out there and you know scares the crap out of her, and then she tries well, to go reshut the thing off because she doesn't think she can get to the escape shuttle. Well, you know that's it. and we talked about it before that there's that whole opening where nothing is said. Well, at the end of this movie too, there's no dialogue after everybody gets killed. Especially she's running around the ship, and all you hear are these sirens and these lights, and you've got that music which is just jamming at that point. And she's running everywhere and running away from that thing. And I love that man. I mean, I love that because what else do you say? There's nothing to say nowadays. She's not going to talk to herself for me. Yeah, maybe she talk to Jonesy. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, but nowadays that that the character would be doing that. And the cat would be talking back in the voice of Antonio Banderas. But I love the tension is now at 10, and it's just pumping, 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 pumping. And she finally gets to the dang shuttle, and boom, just gets away. And I mean, I love the fact that she launches, and it's it's like a shot out of Star Wars, man. You see that, that thing crawling by, and she's like, come on, come on, come on, come on. And there's nothing she can do to punch it and make it go faster. She's got to get away, and she just gets away in the nick of time while that thing detonates. Yep. And, and it's the false ending. It's to make you go... Ah, <sighs> she got away. Yep, it's time for the uh, the fourth act. The uh, right, the poltergeist part after this house is clean, or yep. I guess you know what all the alien movies do have this kind of this fourth act kind of you know some to a lesser degree, but yeah, I mean besides being Ripley, I think that's kind of what the series is known for is the last the last stand between the two survivors and what I just it's it's still I mean it's a great scene. I mean when she's find and she's literally getting naked i mean she's at her most vulnerable now it's, i mean uh, good call i'm glad you noticed that because i think that's uh, people you know can bang on this guy like going yeah now we got to get the gratuitous nude shot of the girl and and i guess in some ways they're playing that but they've never played they haven't played any of the crew as sexual at this point and you start to see that she feels safe enough to i'm taking off my clothes i'm getting in this hypersleep all this stuff, and it is her most vulnerable moment, and that would speak to an audience, particularly of women who are watching that. You know, that's your fear is that when you're getting ready for bed, getting undressed, somebody comes in the window after you. You know, and that's basically what happens. Is that it's, Michael it's, Myers it's, it's, it's reveal a psycho again. scene? You know, when she's in yeah. the shower. 
Yeah, exactly. It's the psycho scene. It's the Michael Myers coming out of the closet at Jamie Lee Curtis at the end of that movie. The alien pops out. Now, Nick, I've got questions for you right here. All right, because this has lingered with me all of these years that I've watched this movie. The alien kind of juts his hand out at her and she runs and gets in the closet. And then it slowly kind of curls itself out and gets up. Why does it take so dang long to get out of that spot when it's moved so fast the rest of the movie? The only answer I can give you, and you're probably just going to crack up, okay? You're going to crack up at this. But I've always had this little weird theory about this movie. After the alien was born, it went running away. And now, when it was born, it was pretty small. Now, from the director's commentary and everything, why did they have Jonesy on board? Why was the purpose of having a cat? Well, for rodent infestation. So it could take out rodents and stuff. I think that they... Alien was hunted by Jonesy at first. I really do. I think that Jonesy was going after the alien until it grew, but I think the alien actually developed a fear of the cat. <laughs> I've never thought of that before. Because there's, 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 there's little stuff in the movie that kind of hints at that. I mean, when the thing's in the cage, the thing's in the cage, you know, Ripley drops it. Well, the alien goes goes into the freaking space shuttle. There's no reason it should have went into the escape shuttle, but... The cat was left there. It couldn't go after Ripley because the cat was there because <laughs> she dropped it. So I went into the escape shuttle, and then when it's coming out from the um, between the pipes, it looks like the cat's out there. <laughs> I think I think it was I think it was scared of the cat the whole time. I think this big giant creature was terrified of Jonesy because <laughs> that's. I have heard everything from this is the end of its life cycle to it knows it's got her cornered. I have never heard the Jonesy theory of alien. <laughs> but well, that, you know, you know what though? It's just as meritorious as, as any of the other stuff because there is no explanation for it. It's a moment of tension and it's really when you get to see the thing at its best. You know, you see most of its costume at this point and it's it it doesn't look like anything that you could put your fingers on. That's the thing. And I love how Ripley, though, is already scheming. She starts looking. She's like, okay, depressurization suit, grappling hook, got it. I'm going to blow this thing right out of the door. (laughs) And she puts that whole plan together in the closet. She gets her gear. She gets in the chair. And I love she's humming like lullabies to herself. Turns around. There it is. And then the ending. She blows up in the airlock. She shoots the thing. And, you know, it gets caught in the door. And I, I love that. And it's still hanging around outside the ship, and it crawls up in the engine, you know, and then she just hits the the afterburners. But you said something in your plot summary that I said I was going to pick on and go, I think we're going to disagree on this. You say she destroys it. I see that alien flying out in full form away from that engine. I don't think she kills it. I think she just blows it out into space, man. Yeah, she probably did. I mean, I use more as destroying as like a term to say that it was dead it's possible it could still be alive i mean ash did say this thing was a perfect organism i mean maybe it's indestructible maybe it's but the question i have and you know i'd be loving to hear from a listener or anybody or you or anybody who can answer me this but when the thing was you know holding on to the door and ripley shoots it with the grappling hook which how does it attach itself to it the thing has acid for blood wouldn't it have burned through the hook and the yeah. cable as it's going out there? I mean, yeah, I, 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 yeah. I guess I guess to be technical, the face hugger had acid for blood. We never saw the alien have acid for blood, but you'd have to assume that its genetics are equal. I mean, people have babies and babies have blood, and we have blood. I mean, there's I don't I wouldn't imagine that its genetics would change. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just it's always something that kind of hit me, but I it's a it's a small little nitpick. I mean, 
Maybe it's holding on to the hook. I don't know. But it's it's, it's clearly not, but I don't know. Can, can I tell you what I've always seen that as? That is the we can shoot the air tank with the M1 Grand and it blows Jaws to smithereens. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't make any physical sense at all, and it doesn't even play by the rules of the rest of this stuff, but I'm so amped up at that point that I go with it, that I'm just willing to let it have that because it gets me to the the actual climax, which is where she blows it out into space. So now you told me something on Flynn that there was a different ending to this though, and I've never heard anything about this. Well, the original scripted ending from O'Bannon was this fourth act didn't exist. The alien got blown up in the ship, and everybody had cookies and cream and went home, or Ripley did. And uh, the other one that actually um, Ridley Scott came up with was he wanted to add a fourth act to the movie, and his original plan was to have the alien kill Ripley. It was actually going to bite her. Wow basically rip her head off and then at the end of the movie it was going to sit down in the chair and the closing speech that you hear ripley say it says it actually speaks in wow. ripley's voice now wow look the, the fox you know read that and said no you're not doing that it doesn't really make much sense i mean it is kind of a startling last thing the monster wins i mean you very rarely see that especially you know in like you know horror movies or science fiction movies but yeah, I mean, it is very different, and I don't, I'm glad that, you know, obviously with, you know, the movies that come up next, we'll get more into them in our next cast, but I'm glad that wasn't the case with this movie that they made that ending. Yeah, I I don't know that, that, that I would have been able to buy that because we hadn't seen the thing mimic anything else, but now it lets me know that Predator did totally rip off everything about Alien, so, so that's, that's another podcast for another day, I guess, though. So, well, Nick, I think we're at the point of the show where it's time to get final thoughts and our popcorn ratings, so what are yours for Alien? I think Alien, if I haven't been clear so far on this podcast, is a spectacular film. It is a great horror movie, a great science fiction movie, and for me, definitely my top five movies of all time. I think everything in this movie is just great from acting, directing, the design, the cinematography, the score by Jerry Goldsmith. I just think it's all great. So if you haven't seen Alien for whatever reason, you need to go out and see this movie right away. You know, go to the store and just buy it. Just make it a blind buy. It's great. And for my rating, it's obviously going to be an extra-large popcorn with every topping you can get on there. Great movie. Definitely a high recommend. Check it out if you haven't already. And if you have seen it, watch it again. I don't know that it's the best film ever made, but it is certainly one of the best put-together, best-executed films you can ever see. Even if you don't like science fiction or horror and stuff and you just want to try something new, folks, you will dig this movie because the characters in it are so good. Everything about this thing works. The actors are fantastic. The script is tight. The music is wonderful. And we haven't even talked much about Jerry Goldsmith here, but the score and then even the other score that they laid in with it is fantastic. Ridley Scott's camera work in this never got any better. I mean, he's made some good movies, and I like a lot of his stuff, but this was the best eye he ever had for a film. I mean, it, it is just wonderful what he was able to do here. So, I'm with you, Nick. This is a fantastic film. I give this one an extra large popcorn as well. This is one of the best films we've ever reviewed for uh, the film strip uh, side of the podcast here, and it's it's one of my favorites too. It's one I grew up with and I really like. So I'm glad to see it still holds up all these years later. So let me ask you this: I mean, we both know what Aliens is, but did this warrant a sequel? I mean, was there anywhere else to go from this? Because it took them seven years to get to it. You know, at the time, I couldn't imagine, you know, 
I only can imagine that a sequel would be almost like a carbon copy of it. That you know, okay, yeah. we're gonna take another crew out there, and they're gonna find it, and it's gonna be another alien, or maybe two, or whatever, and it's just gonna be the same run of the mill, one get one get picked off at a time. No, I don't. I think the movie is great on its own. I'm we'll get more into aliens, but I'm glad it got sequels. But it it works very well as a standalone movie. I mean, there's not many other like horror franchises you can say that about. Maybe you know, Poltergeist is another one. But when you think of like Friday the Thirteenth, that didn't really. You know, I think the second one's better than the first one. And then you know, you know, Halloween probably is one that would have been better left alone. But you know, even like the Freddy ones, I think the third one's the best one, and it's. But yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, did it warrant a sequel? If all the right cogs were in in place, yeah, it would. But my fear would have been that they're just going to cheapen this thing out, make a $5 million sequel, pump it out there on the success, and let's make 17 of them, you know? Well, well th- thankfully, those in charge of it knew it needed a, a, a different touch and needed some other influence. And I mean, I guess we'll get into that in the next podcast, but it, it's one of those films I could see why it gets a sequel, but I'm with you. It works just as its own thing. Like if this, if Ripley never continued on, you never knew anything else about her. I was content to know that she went to sleep with the cat and got back home. You know, that that's that. Yeah. Hopefully got her back home. You don't know. Well, well with any luck, I'll get picked up by the network. I was willing at that point to say, you've got all the luck in the world, lady. You're, you're going to get picked up by the network. I mean, that's what I thought. She deserves, she deserves to get picked up. I mean, because I saw this before aliens existed, you know, before I knew that was going to happen even. So I never knew there would be a sequel. One of the first time I saw this. So I, I'm, I'm glad there is one, but it works even if there isn't. So that's the the beauty of this film, and it's one of those things that uh, it's one of the many things that make this work over a long time. With you know, we obviously know that Ripley has become bigger, almost like the series almost should be called Ripley when you look at really how the series series goes. I mean, Aliens is all about Ripley. Alien Three, you know, all these movies are about Ripley now. Would you have done a sequel with Ripley or without Ripley? You know, I don't know. I I honestly like sequels when they take the thing and put it with a different group of people. I think it, it works better, unless you've got something special in that lead. Halloween made that choice with Halloween 2. But even Halloween 2, like, Jamie Lee Curtis is, really isn't in that movie very much. That's why that one works, but it doesn't work, you know? And then they ultimately totally get away from her. I, I think if you've got a strong character like Ripley, I could see why you would want to put her back in this situation, but I almost feel like Die Hard with that. You know, like how many times can John McClane get in that mess, you know? It, it, it'd have to be organic. It'd have to be a completely organic situation. I mean, you look even look at, like, Planet of the Apes. I mean, the second one had Charlton Heston in it, but they pulled the Halloween 2 with that one, or Halloween 2 pulled a you know, Beneath the Planet of the Apes with, you know, Charlton <laughs> yeah. Heston being in the very beginning and the very end. So, I don't I guess if at that time, too, if I would be hearing about a sequel, I, I'd be surprised that she'd be in it because, you know, the movie is called Alien. It's not called Ripley. So That's a good point. It's That's an interesting thought. And I, hold on to that as we progress through this series. And maybe we can talk about sort of the continuing story because you're right to call it out. It really does become about her. And it's in this second one that it becomes about her. And I think that's in no small part because of who they put in charge of the second one. 
Yeah. Uh, but, but we'll get that uh, next time. So, well, Nick, thanks for joining me for this podcast. It's been a really insightful one. Rare do we get one on here where we've got somebody who really knows the thing backward and forward. I think you know as much about Alien as any of us have known about any of the films we've reviewed. It's maybe only rivaled by what Brian knows about wrestling when we do the, the wrestling <laughs> films. I mean, really. I mean, that, that's kind of what this has been like for me. So educational and fun. And, folks, we hope you have enjoyed it as well. Look, we've got we've got six films left in this retrospective, including and ending with the brand new one, Prometheus, coming out this summer, all for you, just for your enjoyment. We really appreciate your support. Thanks for listening to us. Check us out on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com, and click on the movies link. You can find more episodes in our archives. You can hook up with us on our social media pages there, Facebook and Twitter, and leave us a message in our guest book. Uh, leave us a message on Facebook. Hit us up on Twitter. Let us know what you think. You know, Nick and I have asked a lot of questions back and forth here. If you've got different thoughts or interpretations, let us know uh, on, on any of those mediums. We do appreciate your support. Until next time, for Nick, I'm Jay. Thanks for tuning in to Filmstrip. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip and our reviews of the Alien movie franchise. Visit our website, continuousplaypodcast.com, for more reviews and episodes. I say we take off, loot the site from orbit. There's only way to be sure. All content used or discussed in this podcast are the property of their respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act Section 504C2, Title 17. This is Ripley, last survivor of the Nostromo, signing off.